Morning, church. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to John chapter 17 in the New Testament. The fourth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John chapter 17. And I want to read a few verses in opening, and I want to pray and ask for the Lord's help that He, uh, as Jesus prayed for the Lord's help in making us one. John 17, verse 20. The Word of the Lord says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in Me through their Word, that they may all be one, just as You, Father, are in Me and I in You, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. Would you pray with me? Father, I turn to you as Jesus did as well here in John 17, and I pray that you would make us one. You have done so in uniting us who believe by your Holy Spirit uh, in this communion of saints, uh, both here and around the world and in all ages. And I pray that we would live as one, that it wouldn't just be a, a potential possible reality, but it, it would be what we experience uh, every Sunday, uh, every week, every month, every year that you give us, uh, that we as the Christians here at the Fields Church would experience the communion of saints together with one another and, and those who call upon the name of Christ as well. May we understand and uh, experience afresh this morning this sweet communion that you've given to us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, from John 17, uh, you can either write down or you can flip with me back several hundred pages to Psalm 133, verse 1. And I want to open with this, uh, a, a verse that uh, is familiar to me, maybe familiar to you, one that I uh, was forced to memorize in college, uh, being a part of a, a group of uh, brothers who attempted to dwell together in unity. Uh, but Psalm 133.1 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Now, if you're a parent uh, of sons or daughters, you know how sweet this is as well. When your children are dwelling together in unity. Yes and amen? And you think how sweet it is, how pleasant it is, and how unsweet and bitter it is, and how unpleasant it is when your, when your sons and daughters, uh, when brothers and sisters are not dwelling together in unity. Uh, whether that's childhood uh, sibling rivalry going on or adult children uh, as we've grown old. It, it is a sweet thing. But this, that verse is not simply talking about childhood rivalries. 
This is a psalm in the midst of a larger collection of psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. And it is a psalm, a song that was sung by the people of God as they were intentionally traveling to Jerusalem to worship. It was a song not sung by biological families necessarily, but by those who were going to worship the Lord from every nation, every tribe uh, in Israel, and even Gentiles uh, with them who wanted to come and worship the Lord uh, from different backgrounds, from different socioeconomic levels, uh, from different areas of the world, from different jobs, from all different circumstances of life coming together to worship God. Their eyes fixed on the Lord, and as they were coming together, there was this song sung, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. And it ends with this reason, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. In the following psalm, it it continues with an invitation in Psalm 134. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, He who made heaven and earth. And you can hear several of the lines of the creed that we've been looking at over the past couple months resound in those lines of song as the people were gathering together to worship the Lord, how good and pleasing it was. There's this invitation to continue to bless the Lord. And this is exactly what we're doing this morning as well. We've come come back together this Sunday to worship the Lord. And looking out again, I can say with the psalmist, how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters in the faith Uh, set aside our busy routines to gather together and to worship the Lord. Uh, We we happen to hit this line on the week after Thanksgiving. And we've all been with biological families or maybe some friends and um, many experienced good, sweet times. Unfortunately, sadly, in this broken world, many didn't. And yet, we can come back together and say, no matter what happened this past week, how good and pleasing it is when brothers and sisters in the Lord gather together and worship Him with their eyes fixed on Him. And that's what this line of the creed is going to help us to do once again, to hold high the, the things of eternity and to hold loosely the things of this earth and to focus on the things of the Lord and less on the things of, of, of man. This is the line of the creed that we're hitting this morning. Again, using each line of the creed to point back to the Bible and to see what God's Word says about these truths. I thought this was a helpful statement, one that summarizes our intention in using the creed in this way. Uh, Al Muller says in his book on the Apostles' Creed, said that we engage the theologians and the doctrinal considerations of every age with the Bible as our sure guide and standard of faith. We want to look at this line of the creed and consider what 
What does it mean when we say we believe in the communion of the saints? But we want to look not just at the line of the creed, but back to the Bible and see what the Bible says about this. This is uh, the section of the creed. We're entering really into the last third of the Apostles' Creed and having spent the, the first two-thirds and even the next line of the last third of the creed on God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, focusing on theology. Um, the last two weeks, or last week and, and this week, we're now focusing on ecclesiology, that is, the church. We've looked at who God is, and we're looking at who now the church is. This people of God whom God has redeemed, whom Jesus has died for, has resurrected for, whom the Holy Spirit was given to, we're considering the church the past couple uh, weeks. One in belief of this universal church, this holy Catholic church. And then this morning in this line, the communion of the saints and it's a, a reminder, again, how sweet this is if we consider in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, where the writer of Hebrews encouraging the people of God and says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of son, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We have an opportunity to consider this well this morning, uh, what it means to draw together, to encourage one another, to spur one another on, <coughs> excuse me, in this communion of saints. So let's take it word by word, and, and really just two words, communion and saints. What do we mean, what do we not mean when, we're, when we say we believe in the communion of saints. Well, what we are not saying when we say that line of the creed, we are not saying that we are simply saying that we believe in partaking in communion or the Lord's Supper. This is not a, a reference to the Lord's Supper or communion as you might call it, though I think that that's uh, a part of what communion of saints means, but it's not just that. And so we're not speaking uh, to that in and of itself. Uh, the word communion can be broken up. Come, meaning with, a prefix meaning with, and then of course union, meaning to unite. So with uh, union together. And this is what we're trying to get at. It's a, an act or an instance of sharing together with another person. Uh, we, we could think of the word commune um, that is used in, in different ways in which a group of people would come together to live together and share what they have in common. Uh, in the New Testament, this m might relate to the word koinonia, uh, which is a Greek word that means to fellowship or to have communion with one another. I'm going to read from Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, that describes this communion, this fellowship that the early church had in their belief in Jesus Christ and through the 
fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit that they had received in that day. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says, And they, that is the Christians, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. That's that word, koinonia, the communion. To the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So you can hear this fellowship, this communion that the early believers were experiencing intentionally. They purposefully gathered together to hear the apostles' teaching, to hear the Scriptures being read, to worship God uh, and His Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible will go on to describe this communion that we have, this koinonia, this fellowship that we have with one another uh, in this way. In, in 1 John 1.3, we have fellowship with the Father. 1 Corinthians 1.9, we have fellowship with Christ by faith. In Acts chapter 2, as I just read in verse 42, in 1 John 1.7, that we have fellowship with one another by the Holy Spirit. The Bible also says that we're not to have communion or fellowship with the unbelievers of this world in 2 Corinthians 6.14. But it says, the Bible would go on to say that we do have communion and fellowship in the mystery of Jesus Christ in Ephesians 3.9. In the fellowship of the Gospel in Philippians 1.5 that we have fellowship in the Spirit in Philippians 2.1, that we have fellowship in Christ's sufferings even in Philippians 3.9. And this is why I opened with reading from John chapter 17, where Jesus in His last hours prays. And He prays for His disciples this in verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in Your name which You have given to Me that they may be one even as we are one. This is not just something we desire, but it's something that Jesus desired. And Jesus even spent time praying for and teaching towards that His followers would be one with the same oneness that God the Father and Jesus experience. A, a, a unity, a union with the Father, with the Son, with the Holy Spirit, and with one another. In fact, Paul urges us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling to this oneness. In Ephesians chapter 4, he says, I therefore, in verse 1, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience. He says, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity, the union of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why? 
He says in verse 4, because there is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And so there is a oneness uh, that the Lord Jesus desired for us to experience that He alone experienced with the Father. He and the, the Spirit themselves and, and wanted to pass that on to us through faith in Jesus Christ. And this union with the, the Father and this union with one another. And so when we say communion, uh, you, you can probably assume, but I want to go ahead and say it, that when we say we believe in the communion of saints, we're not saying that uh, we just believe in a union here in this church. And that we who are gathering here this morning at the Fields Church have communion. That we have a, a union with one another. Though we do, and, and in a special way because we've covenanted together as a local church to live out these things, these one another's to one another specifically in, in a specific time, in a specific place. But we're also saying that we have communion with anyone and everyone, no matter where they've lived, no matter when they've lived, we have a communion with those who have repented of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ like we have. That we are one with believers who have gone before us, and we will be one with believers who will come after us. That there is a oneness of this family of God. That those who repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection, we are adopted into a new family. And we may have biological families here on this earth, or, or fam, uh, even adopted families here on this earth, but we have an even higher family, an even more important family, the family of God that we have been adopted into and were made one with, even though you may not have eaten Thanksgiving dinner with some of those people in your family that came years, centuries, millennia even before, or will come much, much, much longer afterward. The communion of saints speaks to the nature of the church in all ages, all Christians around the world and Christians of every generation. In fact, we sang this morning uh, one of Graham's songs that he wrote regarding the truths of Hebrews chapter 11, uh, that song by faith where you could read through Hebrews 11 and read about those who have believed uh, in the Lord, put their faith and their hope in the Lord, uh, even before Jesus left heaven and came to take on the flesh of mankind, before He died on the cross, before He rose from the dead. Abraham who's called the father of our faith. Uh, we're saying that we have a oneness with Abraham. He being the father of our faith, we being the children of that faith who came after him. And what Hebrews chapter 11 goes on to is just to uh, lay out this 
cloud of witnesses is what Hebrews 12 calls them. Uh, uh, Some, just a few of the names of those who have gone before us, whom we are united with by faith in Jesus Christ, and whom Jesus has uh, united us together with His Holy Spirit. And this is why the writer of Hebrews would go on in chapter 12, as we sang as well, in the chorus of that song, in 1 through 2, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, by such a communion of the saints in the past, he says, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How are we to do that? Verse 2 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Those who went before us, us and those who come after us, he says. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the, the idea that the writer of Hebrews is getting at when he writes in Hebrews chapter 11 about all of those who have gone before us. And then up to the point of the time when the writer of Hebrews was writing. And then we can read that book of Hebrews thousands of years later and consider even the writer of Hebrews and those that were living during that time as a part of the cloud of witnesses who have gone before us. We're united as one by faith. And therefore, we have a union with brothers and sisters of the past, both in the Old and the New Testaments. We have a union with uh, our brothers and sisters who lived in the midst of the early church, even the early church fathers. We have a union with the reformers uh, of the, uh, the 1500s who aimed to see the church purified uh, from where it was. We have a union with our brothers and sisters around the world, those in the Middle East and in Africa uh, and in Europe where Christianity began. We have a union with our brothers and sisters in Asia and Australia and the Americas where it's now spread to by God's grace, of which we get to experience that. We have a union with our brothers and sisters who look different than us, different skin color, different languages around the world, and even right here in our own backyard. We have a union with other brothers and sisters, even here in Arlington, Texas, who are gathering at other local churches, so long as they believe the essentials of the gospel that that we hold fast to. We have a union. We're not competing against the, the church one block away that happens to have two language churches gathering in that one building uh, at different times on this Sunday. We're, we're not competing with them, which is why we're intentional to pray for other churches every Sunday morning because we have a oneness with them and we want them to be faithful. We want God to make their faithfulness fruitful in their life because we're one with them. We want to celebrate what God does in other churches because we're one with them. Think about it as a grandparent or a parent is happy when they see their child or grandchild do something great. 
we want to be able to celebrate those th- the things that are happening in other churches, uh, both in our own backyard and around the world, because we're family. We're one. We, our hearts break then on the other side of that. When we see churches persecuted, believers, brothers and sisters in Christ martyred for their faith, our hearts ought to break. We ought to give towards um, meeting the needs of those people because we're family. More family than even biological family. For Jesus Himself said when His mother and brothers were trying to get His attention, who are my mother and my brothers? Are not the children of God my mother and my brothers? He saw the importance of the eternal spiritual family that was even more important than blood. And so there is a union among us as brothers and sisters, which is why the New Testament, uh, after the Gospels and the book of Acts, and even including in the book of Acts, has so many commands to do something to one another. To, first and foremost, Jesus said, love one another. Uh, That we are to love one another like we love ourselves. The second and greatest commandment. And the New Testament writers will, uh, you know, use 60, I think, some commands to do and live out with one another. Why? Because we are one. We are united together. And if we're doing it to one another, we're doing it to our own selves because we're one. We're building up one one another. And, And so when you care for one another, church... You're caring for yourself. When you serve one another, uh, you're serving yourself. You're building up the body of Christ. Uh, When you love one another, when you encourage one another, when you sharpen one another. Philippians chapter 2 probably gives us one of the clearest pictures of this because it puts forth Christ as the one who has given us the highest model of service and love for one another. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, he says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, and there is, I would say, any comfort from love, and of course there is, any participation or fellowship in the Spirit, Paul says, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, of oneness, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Verse 3, he goes on and says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you Look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. For this is what Jesus did for us. He looked out for us. He laid down his life for us. He looked at the 
the interest of us more than the interest of himself and was willing to be crucified for us on our behalf and yet rose victoriously over sin and death to offer us this union and this oneness. And so when we talk about the communion of saints and we say that we believe in the communion of saints, we're saying that we believe again in Jesus Christ who has made us one through His death and His resurrection by faith. And through faith, He's given us His very Spirit and united us to be one together. We're, when we say we believe in the communion of saints, we're saying we believe that Christ wasn't done working in and among us, but He was continuing to unite people to Himself even 2,000 years, praise God, still uniting people to Himself in the church. And we, have, we ought to live that out. For it's not only that we are to do these one another's to honor the Lord and to bless one another, which ends up blessing ourselves, but the Bible makes it abundantly clear that it's our oneness and it's our love for one another that is going to cause the world to look in and see and believe. In fact, this is why God chose a people in the Old Testament. He chose Israel among all the other nations of the world that He might bless them and, and be with them. And the nations would look from the outside in and see what God was doing and turn and come to Him. Unfortunately, they didn't display that oneness. They didn't display the fact that Christ was with, or that God was with them, making them one in that place. There was division. And so they failed to do that. But Christ came and established uh, another people that included those of old, but also included new when He made the church. He died and rose from the dead to purchase all who believe in Him, to make us one in the church. And we live out the one another's, not only because we're united to one another, not only because it honors the Lord and, and it blesses one another, but because it, it shows the world who God is, that God is one, and that we have been united with Him as one, and that they too can be united with Him as one and experience the oneness and the family that we get to experience. So church, when we say we believe in the communion of saints, we're not just saying that we believe this as a potential reality that, that, that we'll have one day in, in heaven. We're saying we have it right here and right now. We're saying that we get to experience the blessings of it right here and, and right now and will forevermore. And we're saying that it's this communion of saints that is going to be one of the ways that the world in, the, in the, looking in from the outside sees who God is, hears the good news of the Gospel, and believes and turns to be adopted into that family as well. And so let's consider that, that our oneness, it ought to be on display as we live out these one another's, 
It ought to be believed that we have a oneness with God even when we doubt that we have uh, the presence of God in our lives. But it ought to be lived out so that the world might know who God is and, and to be invited into this family as well. But the line of the creed goes on and says, and states our belief in the communion of saints. So what do we mean when we say the communion of saints? Uh, Again, we want to say what we are not saying and what we are saying. Uh, When we say that we believe in the communion of saints, what early Christians were not saying and what we're not saying is that we have a communion with a special group of individuals who were more holy or closer to God than others in the word saints. Uh, Sadly, the word saint has been used to refer to specific individuals whom specifically the Roman Catholic Church or the Pope canonizes with a special status. And in turn, the Roman Catholic saints are honored and prayed to or even worshipped. We're not saying that we have a communion with a special group of saints who have been set apart by an earthly church. In fact, in the Roman Catholic Church, saints are in heaven, but in the Bible, the saints are on earth. So what are we saying? Well, saint is a translation from the Greek word hagios, which means consecrated ones or holy ones. And we're not saying that we have a communion with holy people who are holy in and of themselves. No, all mankind is unholy. And so when we say we have a communion with the saints, the holy ones, we're speaking about those who have believed in Jesus Christ and have been made holy, have been forgiven of their sins who have been given a righteousness and a holiness that was not their own because Christ took their sinfulness, though He knew no sin Himself, like we sung earlier from 2 Corinthians 5. So it's a distinct, a separate, a different group of people than whom we were when we were in the world. And the Bible uses the word saint, as I said, not only as those who are on earth, but to describe all Christians in the church, not specific Christians. Consider how the word saint is used in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 2, in Paul's introduction of this letter. In 1 Corinthians 1-2, he says that he's writing to the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified, that is, made holy in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all of those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. That's a wonderful verse that really gets at what we are saying when we believe in the communion of saints. We're saying that we believe that there is a oneness in those who have called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. 
and that there are sometimes a specific group of saints who gather together as local churches. Here, it was in Corinth. Uh, Here in Arlington, at the Y, it's the Fields Church. We gather together uh, uh, as, as one. But the saints are those who are in Christ Jesus, whether they're in Corinth or in Arlington, whether they lived in the first century uh, or the 21st, 22nd, 23rd century. It doesn't matter. Consider how one of our oldest Baptist confessions describes the saints in the church. It says this, the members of these churches are saints by calling, visibly displaying and demonstrating in and by their profession and life, their obedience to the call of Christ. They willingly agree to live together uh, in accordance to Christ's instructions, giving themselves to the Lord and to one another by the will of God, with the stated purpose of following the ordinances of the gospel. This is what a, a saint is in the New Testament. This is what we mean when we say we believe in the communion of saints. Not that we're one with so-called saints who have gone before us, uh, but we are one with all Christians, all believers in Jesus Christ of every generation and of every nation. But how do we know who is and who is not a saint in Christ's church, especially as we look out from the Fields Church to uh, other local churches or to other people who call themselves Christians, how do you know if you have communion with them or not? I think, really, the Apostles' Creed is a pretty good test of whether or not you have communion with the saints, with that person in this way. Do they believe that God is the maker uh, of heaven and earth, uh, that He is the sustainer of everyone and of everything, that He's Father and Lord of all, uh, Almighty? Do they believe that Jesus Christ was God's Son, that He was born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit, suffering, being crucified, dying, being buried, and raised from the dead on the third day? to appear to many uh, on this earth, to commission His followers to go and make disciples, to ascend to the right hand of the Father? Do, you believe, do they believe in the Holy Spirit? Do they believe in the Trinity specifically? That God is one. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit as one. When, when you're talking with people this week, uh, in the coming months, and you ask them if they're a Christian or not, and you begin having a conversation regarding the things of God, are these the things that they believe? And if, if so, if, if they've repented of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ and have not trusted in their own works to save them, but have trusted in Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross to save them, then there is at least at some level a communion that you have with that saint that person who has believed in Jesus Christ and has been made holy by the blood of Jesus. 
so the Apostles' Creed, I think, is a, a pretty good test. But if someone doesn't believe in those essentials uh, of the faith, those things that are essential to salvation, then you shouldn't assume that you have a communion, even though they may call themselves a Christian. There are uh, religions, even cults, that call themselves Christian in name, but they do not believe uh, what the Bible says about God and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. They may try to stand at your front door and convince you that they're a Christian too. But only so far as we have these things in common do we have a communion with them in the Lord. But we also uh, need to think about even in our local church, how do we know who, who is and who is not part of this communion of the saints. In the statement of faith that I read for you earlier, it ends by uh, saying that we will give ourselves to the Lord and to one another by the will of God with the stated purpose of following the ordinances of the gospel. It mentions the ordinances of the gospel as a means to which you would know who these saints are. Ordinance is a fancy word that just means a command or a mandate. And the Bible speaks that, uh, tells us that Jesus gave us two ordinances, two commands for His people to uphold and to continue to be able to determine who is and who is not one of the saints, a part of Christ's church. And these are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And both were commanded by Christ to be done uh, from then on. And I want us to consider uh, both of these this morning. Baptism was uh, one of the, the ordinance that was commanded to be practiced uh, for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, but was to be done once and for all. It was a public display of one's faith, of one turning from, in that time, Caesar as Lord, uh, or even Yahweh alone as Lord, to Jesus as Lord. It was a radical transformation, a radical commitment to be baptized in, in the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of the Father, the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit uh, in that day. The Lord's Supper, on the other hand, is not something that's done just once, but something that is continued. It's the regular continuation rite in the church. And so two ordinances, one done at, uh, after one's put their faith in Jesus Christ, and one that is continued. Both of these used to be able to determine who is and who is not the church. Baptism, according to the New Testament, is the immersion uh, in, the, in and underwater in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit of those who have repented of their sins and turned to Jesus Christ for salvation. It's Something that's done by those who are going to commit themselves to follow Him all of the days 
of their life. Now, unlike others uh, who believe that baptism has some saving power in and of itself, we don't believe that. We believe that baptism is a symbolic act that is symbolizing something that has gone on on the inside of those who have believed in Jesus Christ. It's not essential for salvation. We could consider the thief on the cross whom Jesus said would be with him in paradise. Though he would die on that cross and was never able to get down from the cross to be baptized, he himself would get to experience eternity in paradise with God in heaven. But it's a public display of one's willingness to follow Christ and their commitment uh, to, to obey Christ all of the days of their life. Now, when we baptize in, in our church, we want to hear of what someone actually believes. We want to hear of their belief in God, in Jesus, and in the Holy Spirit, uh, of their understanding of salvation. Is it by grace or is it by works? We'll have these conversations with anyone who would desire to be baptized in our church. At the same time, we live in a very different time period than the first century when they were baptized. I think, sadly, living in America in 2022, uh, there is an Americanized version of Christianity in which you're born a Christian and you're potentially baptized at three, four, five years old, sometimes even as infants. And you th- many people thinking that baptism is their assurance or their ticket or that that makes them a Christian. And that's just not the way the New Testament describes baptism. And so we want to be intentional to not only see one say they believe in Jesus Christ, but we want to see that they believe in Jesus Christ by seeing a radically transformed life, a willingness to sacrifice and suffer and serve for the Lord Jesus. That's harder to do as a four-year-old than it is as a 14-year-old, and even more so as a 24-year-old or a 74-year-old. And so we want to experience that. But so long as we see our children profess faith and Christ and want to follow Him and and sacrifice and commitment, and we see a, a changed life in them, we want to allow them to come forward for baptism. Or as an adult, someone who you share the gospel with or who comes into our church gathering and hears the Word of God and the way that they might be able to be saved through Jesus' death and resurrection and they put their faith and trust in Him. We want to call them to follow Jesus as He said to follow Him through baptism as well. And so that's one way that we know someone is a follower of Christ, is a saint. Not only have they believed in Jesus Christ, but they've followed Him in baptism. If someone says that they are a Christian and they believe in Jesus, but they're unwilling to follow Him in baptism, probably one of the most clear commands that Jesus has given. It's somewhat proof that they're truly not willing to follow at that point. And so as someone, a baptized believer in Jesus Christ, the other ordinance was the Lord's Supper. 
And where baptism was to be done once and not to be done at any other time in one's life, even at a a period where you had an extreme period of growth in your life or even a rededication uh, to the Lord Jesus at your life, uh, or even not necessary in special water around the world. It's just unneeded uh, uh, for that. The Lord's Supper is something that is commanded to be done often, regularly, which is why we have bread and juice before us even this morning to partake of this ordinance, this command of, of Jesus, and one that is to be partaken of by only believers, those who have not only repented of their sins and believed in Jesus Christ, but have been baptized and followed Jesus in obedience in that way. Again, like baptism, this bread and this juice have no special uh, nature to them. Uh, they, they are not, unlike Roman Catholics believe, the actual body and blood of Jesus when you eat them. They're simple symbols of Christ's body. They're symbols of Christ's blood that was given for us. They're a memorial in one sense of Christ's offering and at the same time a, a practice in praise to God for His sacrifice. And so after a Christian has been baptized once into the church as their initiation rite, they regularly partake of the Lord's Supper as their continuation rite. In this way, the Lord's Supper then regularly affirms their faith in Jesus Christ to themselves, but also to others in their communion with us as saints so long as they're taking it. And we're going to practice that this morning, inviting all who have repented of their sins, believed in Jesus Christ, and followed Him in baptism to stand together as one and to eat from one bread and to drink from one cup Symbolic bread and symbolic cup, remembering Christ's body and blood that was shed for us. And it's, it would be uh, important for me to note, as we are entering into this season of Advent, uh, where uh, we remember the Lord's coming, Jesus' first coming, when He came as a, an infant in Mary's womb, to live a perfect sinless life and die and rise from the dead, we look backward toward, towards his first, or, yeah, towards his first coming, but we also look forwards to his second coming when he will return to take all of those who have believed in him to be with him forever. Uh, this is what J.I. Packer says regarding. Um, Uh, this looking backward and looking forward. He says the church is the supernatural society of God's redeemed and baptized people. Looking back to Christ's first coming with gratitude and on to His second coming with hope. And it's neat to consider that both of these ordinances, both of these commands of Christ given to the church to determine who was in the church, who's a part of this communion of saints, both look backward and look forward. 
We, we, I've talked about how baptism uh, looks backward and points us backward to Jesus' first coming when he died and was buried and raised to life. And we then, who repent of our sins and believe on Jesus Christ, uh, are symbolically buried under the water and then raised to walk in the newness of life through faith in Jesus Christ, as Romans 6 4 says. But baptism also points us forward uh, as we longingly await Christ's second coming when we will be forever and raised to walk in the newness of eternal life with resurrected bodies. And we'll look at what that means more in the coming weeks when we get to that line of the creed that we believe in the resurrection uh, of the body. Colossians chapter 3, 3-4 through four says, for, it, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. And so this ordinance of baptism, it looks backward to Christ's first coming, but it also helps us to look forward to His second coming. In the same way, the Lord's Supper points backward as we eat bread and drink from the cup in thankful remembrance of Him and His death, as it represents His body and His blood. But the Lord's Supper also points us forward as we look ahead to Christ's second coming when we will get to eat with Him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation chapter 19, verse 9 says that the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And so we eat this morning in remembrance of Christ's death on the cross in the past, but we also look forward to Christ's second coming when he will take us to be with him forever in heaven and to be able to eat with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so Christian, believer, church member here at the fields, let us boldly declare our belief in the communion of saints, knowing better this morning what that actually means. That we have a oneness with God that is impossible with man. That only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. That we have a oneness with one another that is impossible with man, but possible with God as Jesus sent His very Spirit to reside in each and every one of us and unites us together. There is a oneness about us. Let us live out those one another's. Uh, having determined who the one another's are by considering someone's faith, by seeing their practice of baptism and regular worship in the Lord's Supper, let's live out that oneness, not only for God's honor and God's glory, not only for our benefit and the benefit of our local church, but let's live out that oneness and that communion with one another so that others would look in and see who God is and how they too might be able to be united with God forever. If you have 
yet to experience that oneness with God that I've been describing, if you have yet to experience that oneness with a group of people that look different, sound different, talk different, act different, and yet have one faith in Jesus Christ, I want to invite you, I want to urge you as, as Paul did, uh, to put your faith in Jesus Christ, who is the mediator, uh, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the sin and shame, and gave his life for us. Put your faith and trust in Jesus this morning and see that you will experience a oneness with God that is impossible through your own good works. That you'll experience a oneness with each and every one of us who have put our faith also in Jesus Christ. For you too, like us, will be adopted into God's family and will be able to experience a oneness with us like you can't experience with anyone else, even your own biological family. Let's aim to live these things out as we partake in the Lord's Supper this morning, as we go out to be the church in the world. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for who you are and for what you've done in uniting us together by faith in Jesus Christ, your one and only Son, and through your gift of the Holy Spirit who unites us together even now. And thank you for the unity that we have with those who have gone before us in years past, in other nations, for the unity and the oneness that Christians in generations ahead of us and in nations that may not have even been formed will experience with us simply because we're united to you who alone is everlasting. God, I pray that you would help us remember what you have done in the cross and sending your one and only Son. Jesus, thank you for the sacrifice, the service that you gave for us by giving of your body and shedding of your blood. Holy Spirit, thank you for your work in the cross, in the resurrection, and in bringing us to an awareness of the truth. And I pray that as we partake of this bread and this cup, as baptized believers in Jesus Christ, that we would do so in thankful remembrance of you and your death, but that we would also do so proclaiming your death until you come. And that we would long this Advent season for your second coming when one day with resurrected bodies raised to newness of eternal life, we will get to eat the marriage supper with the Lamb. So Jesus, would you help us to honor you, to glorify you in this moment, to love one another well as we partake of the Lord's Supper together and to go out and to be the church in the world so that others might experience oneness with you and oneness with us as a local church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.